Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Kirsten, it's so good to see you. I am so excited to do this episode. Uh, I went to the doctor and had a physical and a wellness check, and I got a clean bill of health. Woohoo! I'm so glad to hear that. I like him. I like my doctor a lot. He was like cussing about uh, anti vaxxers and QAnon. And I was like, <laughs> are we friends? <laughs> That's the best. Oh. And listener, He's- if you don't know or you haven't picked up on this vibe, Andrew and I met through work and we were colleagues. And then for a little while, I was his boss. And then we were colleagues again. And now I feel, and I don't know, Andrew, if you feel differently, but I feel like we have kind of like a little brother, big sister vibe. So when you talk about your health, I very much respond <laughs> to it, like in a big sisterly way. Like, I'm so glad to hear that you went to the doctor and that everything is good. And I fight the urge to be like, are you taking care of yourself? Are you getting enough sleep? <laughs> well, and listeners, I was a person who, well, in my defense, <laughs> It's always good to come to a conversation defensive before laying out any facts. <laughs> um, I never went to the doctor as a child. We didn't have health insurance. Um, it was not a thing that we did unless you were possibly going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Country that time. came with me into mm-hmm. adulthood. Uh, I was not a person who frequented the doctor. A wellness check would have never been on my itinerary. And so over the last three-ish years. I've been trying really hard to just confront it head on. I mean, to the point I have a dentist appointment in a couple weeks. So I was like, okay, every, I need to be this level of adult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously like maintaining your teeth. That's, that's an easy one. But the one that I don't do ever still is optometry. I mean, I've always yeah. had perfect vision <laughs> brag and mm-hmm. <laughs> And like, I I am grasping the idea that eye health is just a part of your overall physical health as well. And there are things that an optometrist could catch or understand that would be helpful to know. And I'm not even afraid. I think it's just lazy. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it's one more thing to do. And I can relate. I have 2020 privilege or had in my 30s. (laughs) And in the last couple of years, no longer have. But even still, I just don't like doing it. So I go to CVS, I try on readers and see which ones fit. And then I order nice ones from Zenny or from the other like online <laughs> eyeglass place. <laughs> so I can get cute styles. But yeah, it's just a pain in the ass. And when you go 40 years or 45 years without really needing to attend to them, it's even harder. Yeah. So like, Doctor I've got, dentist I've got, um, optometrist still in the works, but I will do it this year. I mean, I have insurance, so it's free. Well, free. I mean, a little bit of my paycheck goes into yeah. it. But yeah, that's that's my next goal. But a clean bill of health from the doctor. Lots of good stuff there. Just having a regular cleaning and exam at the dentist, so I don't expect anything bad there. So yeah, I'm really... Uh, I'm trying so to be excited. adult. I'm so excited. And this is a time where we could use our platform here to plug universal health care, which I think I could speak for both of us in saying that we support. 
now is your chance to contradict me, Andrew, if you're against it. Um, I love capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) I was just reading, I don't know, something. I'm not very good at quoting sources because I just read a lot and it's very frenetic and all over the place. But I was just reading someone saying, you know, making one of those hypothetical, oh, we can't afford universal health care. And then they were like, well, how much does it cost in England? And then they came up with like a per capita cost that England spends for the NHS, um, or I should say the UK spends for the, for the NHS. And then the total, if we, you know, multiplied it by how many are people we have in our population, it was like... 200 billion, 200 million less, I don't know, than um, like the cost of Medicare right now. So like we would be paying less, if we use the NHS model, we would be paying less than what we currently are paying to take care of only people over 65 and the bottom 10% of income people Mm -hmm. in the U.S. So it was like, I mean, again, like very bad at quoting numbers and sources and all things like that. But it was like just to make that point. But everybody should have health care. It's ridiculous and bananas that they don't. Yeah, I mean, I am a person who doesn't even necessarily believe that the insurance industry should exist. Mm. Aside from they actually often don't help you when you need it most. They're just making trillions of dollars of profit on things that are routine. Like -hmm. you shouldn't need insurance to cover a doctor checkup or a regular sick visit. Like we've warped it in such a world where we've created an entire trillion dollar industry that shouldn't exist. And it's like, yeah, well, those jobs would be displaced, but it's like, okay, well, all of those people could get jobs in our new healthcare system. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we are running for president, -president, (laughs) co-president, co-president of health insurance, United States of America. Just as soon as, I mean, I know how badly our listeners want us to run for president, but we are only going to do it when we have 5,000 five-star ratings and reviews. So go and rate us, review us, give us five stars, and then we will formally announce our run for president in... I don't know when, 2028. Let's give ourselves some time. Yeah. And I mean, the merch is going to be incredible. Obs. <laughs> the communications will be on point. Uh, totally. Um, the lobbying <laughs> will be bad. <laughs> we only use our powers for good, though. That's, that's what it is. We're going to bring trust back to the Oval Office. You can trust us. We're just good people. I mean, I'm a good person, and Andrew listens to me 90% of the time. (laughs) In my head, I was just like, bring trust back to the Oval Office. I was like, damn, that's a good campaign slogan. (laughs) (laughs) But we've already admitted publicly that you're Gryffindor, so we have have some work to do there, but... Or are we going to court the Gryffindor? Oh my God. I don't know. I was like, um, in my head. Oh no, not like, Gryffindor. Slytherin. But I was uh, like, if I don't say anything, is that even more Slytherin? Oh my God. It's just like last week I did the EMD, EDM, electronic music dance. Yeah. AKA <laughs> EDM. 
And this week I'm getting Slytherin confused for Gryffindor. I don't know. I, I wish I knew what to blame it on. Like, it's not baby brain. I don't know. But my brain is not what it used to be. I mean, we've locked ourselves in our homes for a whole year and a half. Like, <laughs> I think but we need to have, have some to grace. You have to call me out. You have to call me out. When you hesitate to call me out, that makes me feel so old. It's like, oh, bless her heart. I just can't even tell her. No, absolutely fucking not. You must call me out. Brutally, maybe. Be kind and be brutal. I just sit quiet. I'm like, I can, I can edit around this. <laughs> okay. But that's Recording. the real evil plan. This whole podcast is an elaborate ruse where I can construct statements from you that I edit and stitch together. <laughs> so you can steal my amazing life. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, this is nonsense. Now, our planned banter that we had talked about talking about was what we've been watching because... Last week we talked about having taken a break, but we we never stop consuming culture because that's what we do. Is there anything special that you've been reading or watching or listening to that you want to talk about? Did you see uh, Sharon Stone going after Meryl Streep? Yes, of <laughs> course uh. I did. I have to say, though, and I'm not saying this to be mean. This is saying more about me, obviously, than it says any. It says nothing about Sharon Stone and everything about me. But, you know, I made certain assumptions about her intelligence based on nothing but bias and stereotypes that I have about, you know, women in Hollywood and women who take certain roles and roles that she's had and blah, blah, blah. But when I read her her talking about it because it made a great headline, right? Like Sharon Stone slams Meryl Streep basically. But when you read what she actually said or the snippets of it that I, that I read, it was actually fairly thoughtful and it was like, you know, calling attention to how, you know, only so many women can make it and there's only room at the top for one or however many, but there are a lot of, so I've, I found myself confronting my biases because I was like, oh, damn, Sharon Stone like knows what's going on and can articulate it and all of that. It was. I also thought it was a really interesting perspective. And obviously Meryl's great, but like I appreciated the other actresses that Sharon mentioned because it was like, well, it, it would be one thing if it was like, let's have another white actress. <laughs> Right, um, right. But like thinking of the range of talent and just the incredible talents, like it does make sense why it could be problematic to hold someone to that high regard of everything you touch is gold. And not that yeah. she ever, not that Meryl ever asked for that either. I'm sure it's actually probably embarrassing to her. But yeah, just so interesting to see. That's interesting. And what I'd really like to see to test her acting chops, I would like to see Meryl Streep play the Lindbergh baby now. <laughs> so listeners if you haven't guessed today's episode <laughs> i'm like how could i ever transition this to our topic <laughs> segue 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 <laughs> well i think that was a wonderful transition andrew this week we are going to talk about the Lindbergh baby and 
it's an interesting case. And I think that it's one that we have to talk about a little bit differently. You know, last week we talked about the, the black metal scene and I think we approached that one knowing that most people would not know much at all about what we were about to talk about. And the week before we talked about the Zodiac and we could kind of assume that most people knew, you know, at least high level, the informa- information that we were going to talk about with Zodiac. And this week it's kind of in between because it's kind of a historical case. I mean, it it happened almost 100 years ago, but it was so huge that... I feel like if you're over 40, you're going to know probably quite a bit about it. And if you're under 40, you probably have heard of it, but maybe don't know a lot. I don't know. What do you think? I know about it. I haven't necessarily sought it out, but I for sure listened to podcasts that have touched on it. I, I've, I'm pretty sure it was in like school, even like it came up because, you know, Lindbergh being famous and mm-hmm. the Atlantic flight, like, so he was a historical figure and then just, you know, the crime of the century, it really did still make its way. Um, I think as a, I, I would bet you Gen Z has no idea, Yeah, but I, I was still in the group where it was around. Mm-hmm. It, it was like known maybe even in some of my like journalism classes, we might've touched on, the crime of the century. But yeah, I, I I would be willing to guess. And if you're a Gen Z listener, let us know if you think your peers mm-hmm. are aware of this at all, or if it's uh, old enough that it's fading back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Should I just jump right in? Yeah. All right. So as we were talking about, we're talking about the Lindbergh kidnapping um, and an eventual murder. So I'm just going to kind of lay out the basics of the case there, you know, what I find is when I, when I start really digging into a case or into a story that we're working on, I always think, Oh, the crime part is going to be pretty short. And then Andrew's going to have a lot of time to talk about the culture because I can just give the broad strokes. And once I start digging in, there's always a ton more detail than, than I expect or anticipate. And so this one, I want to kind of keep it high level um, and, and hit on the major milestones. So to begin with, I just want to set the time frame. The kidnapping or the abduction happened on March 1st in 1932. Um, so again, we're in the Great Depression. The place was near Hopewell, New Jersey. They were building a private home that was a retreat. They had another home, but this was to be their kind of private retreat away from the fame um, that Charles Lindbergh and his family experienced from his historic transatlantic crossing which happened in 1927, so five years prior. So between 8 and 10 p.m. on that evening, March 1st, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., who was 20 months old at the time, was kidnapped from his crib in the second-floor nursery of this family home. The child was the oldest child of the aviator, Charles Lindbergh, and his wife, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, who was an heiress. And that's usually how she's described, but... You know, she was also a pilot, and that was information that I didn't know when I started reading into this, and she did some of the flights with him. And one little bit of information, and I'll talk more about this later when we get to kind of motive and and different um, theories about the case, but there was some speculation or talk that Charlie, I'm just going to call him Charlie, the son who was who was kidnapped had some physical deformities or physical challenges as a result of fume inhalation that Anne had 
while she was pregnant and accompanying Charles on a, on a transatlantic flight. Does that all make sense? Mm -hmm. So she actually did some of the flights with him. I think she was a pilot in our own right. Again, just kind of setting the stage, particularly for our younger listeners who maybe don't know this, the Lindberghs were one of the golden couples of the time. Charles was the first person to complete a solo transatlantic flight. And if you've heard of the plane Spirit of St. Louis or seen the movie that refers to it, that was the plane that he flew. And he flew from New York to Paris, which was also a first to fly from two hubs like like that, rather than just kind of like the edge of America to the edge of Europe. He actually mm-hmm. flew from two large cities, which was a first And then also, I think his journey was about 3,000 miles longer than any other transatlantic flight. So he was the first one to do it solo, the first one to do it from hub to hub, and and the longest flight. And so he was just considered a hero. And the couple was young. I think he was 25 when he did the flight. They were beautiful. They were wealthy because of the money that she had. And then also, he went on to make loads and loads of money from speaking engagements and and publishing. So I think in trying, as I was trying to think of how to describe this to younger listeners, think of Elon Musk, but less weird, or think of Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, but cooler and younger and better looking, or think of like Benefer 1.0, but with, with a lot more class. You think that captures it? Yeah, but now I cannot wait to have an off-pod conversation with you about Benefer 2.0. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yes, it's a date. <laughs> so going back to the crime, you know, the nuts and bolts of it, there's a house, it's out kind of in the country, and the kidnappers reach the nursery on the second floor through an unlocked window using a crudely built extension ladder. So an extension ladder is just a ladder that like collapses to be kind of like one story and then it stretches out. I think everybody's seen them, the metal jobbies. Well, this was a wooden handmade extension ladder that was very crudely built, it was described as. But it took someone with some knowledge of carpentry to make it because, again, it was an extension ladder. So each of the three pieces nested within the other pieces. They extended and then they locked together with, like, pins or something. And so that ladder was found at the edge of the property a few days after the abduction. Um, so we'll, we'll come back to the ladder because it really is one of the, the key pieces of um, key clues and, and evidence in, in the case. Then under the window, there were footsteps and there was mud found in the room, but the mismanagement of the scene all but destroyed most of the physical evidence. And ironically, and and I'm saying that kind of sarcastically, or it could be suspiciously, depending on your perspective, the scene was mismanaged because of Lindbergh himself. So imagine you've got this larger than life figure in his private home out in the country. He's got loads of connections. And in his arrogance, he really thought that he could manage the scene and search for the kidnappers better than the police themselves, which, to be fair, the police didn't have a lot of experience with kidnapping. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we can talk about this a little bit later. But at the time, kidnapping was not a federal offense. In fact, this was the crime that prompted kidnapping and crossing state lines with a kidnapped victim to become a a federal offense. So before this time, yeah, it was just local bobbies, basically. 
um, I don't know where that came from, but local bobbies, I'm sticking with it, <laughs> uh, who investigated these things. And so Lindbergh was pretty sure that he would be able to manage the investigation better himself. And because of his clout, he was able to insert himself and basically take over the investigation. And so because of that, the scene itself was just destroyed, essentially, between, you know, well-meaning investigators who wanted to come and help and looky-loos and, you know, everybody from the local area just kind of poured onto the property, like damaged all footprints, footprint evidence and just made a mess of the scene. So that is kind of like part of what made this a difficult case to solve. Later in the room, they found a ransom note, and we'll talk a little bit more about the ransom note itself and the notes in general, but in that note, it asked for $50,000 of ransom, and it asked for specific denominations, you know, small denominations, and a lot of time was spent kind of looking at that particular note, and later investigators determined that that note and the other notes were all written by the same person, and were written by a German-speaking immigrant. And, you know, one of the interesting things about looking into these cases in the past is I have a little bit of, you know, modern smugness. Like, oh, well, those dumb hicks back then, what did they know? And, oh, they probably just were, you know, prejudiced against German immigrants. And, you know, you, you have all these kind of ideas and, and wondering. And so, I later watched a documentary about it, and as I'm looking at it, they pointed to the features in the note that led them to believe that it was written by someone whose original or um, native language is German, and it made sense, right? It was like weird capitalization on words that we wouldn't normally capitalize, and the dollar sign Mm -hmm. was after the numbers and the way that they do it in Germany, and like letter combinations that are common in German but not in English, and So long story short, they believed that the note had been written by a German immigrant. And after they kind of get or don't get control of the scene and there's kind of chaos, there was another note on March 6th, so a few days later. And this note increased the ransom demand to $70,000. And one way, you know, we talked about in the Zodiac how it was difficult to know that crimes were committed by the same person you know, even though this happened almost 100 years ago now, it's like the perpetrators anticipated this. And so even on the original note, there was this intricate stamp and hole punch pattern that was on the bottom of the note. And that pattern, they were instructed to look for that pattern on every note. And if it didn't have that pattern, that's how police would know that it wasn't from the kidnappers. So the second note comes in, they increase the ransom demand. Then a week after the abduction, and, you know, during all this time, it's crazy investigation and tons of leads, and, you know, the police are doing their utmost. Lindbergh is doing his utmost. But a week goes by, and they receive another note, so the third note, and that was on March 8th, so a week after the crime. And Lindbergh and his attorney received this note, and it stated that the kidnappers wanted an independent go-between to negotiate the ransom delivery and kind of the logistics of the ransom drop. And they didn't want someone chosen by Lindbergh himself. Coincidentally, and again, I say this with some sarcasm because it seems very suspect to me, but uh, there was a Lindbergh stan. And again, at this time, there were thousands and thousands of Lindbergh stands because he was famous, you know, mm-hmm. just, you know, accomplished, rich, wealthy, you know, good looking guy. 
everybody want guys wanted to be him, women wanted to bang him. And so this guy John Condon from the Bronx offered to act as an emissary. So again, just to clarify cuz I had like a lot of words coming out of my mouth there. On March 8th, they get a letter from the kidnapper saying, "We want to go between that you don't choose." And on March 8th, the very same day, they are contacted by John Condon saying, "Hey, if you need a go between, I'm your guy." Mm-hmm. Weird, sketchy, right? Sketchy. <laughs> so inexplicably, Lindbergh says, "Sure, I don't know you, random guy from the Bronx, but let's do this." And so he gives eventually, not that same day, but he eventually gives this guy John Condon, and he was a doctor of some sort. So all the literature refers to him as Doctor Condon. Gives him $70,000 in cash and gold certificates to hand over to the kidnappers. So throughout the rest of March and April, and I think, again, for our younger listeners, I don't mean to harp on this, but, you know, this is obviously before, like, cell phones, obs, before TV, before faxes. Like, phones existed, but very, like, early versions of them. So communications are just slow and torturous. So this negotiation process continues through March and into the beginning of April, back and Mm -hmm. forth through notes. And so they're working out kind of a proof of life of sorts. And what they ended up getting for a proof of life was the baby's, they call it a play suit, but it's basically like, you know, a onesie pajama type of thing that the baby Mm -hmm. had been wearing. And they accepted this as, as proof of life. So all in all, there were 13 notes that went back and forth. One in-person meeting where Dr. Condon actually met someone at a cemetery in the Bronx, um, and the man referred to himself as John. So he became known as Cemetery John and gave instructions. And then the final meeting when he actually gave him the money and, and he received back the 13th note. So again, all of this happened at that final ransom drop Cemetery John said, you'll be able to find the baby on a boat off the coast of Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. And I think he maybe even said the name of the boat. So immediately, like police authorities, the FBI was involved at this point, descend upon the waters around Martha's Vineyard. And they find what they think is the boat, but there's no baby. And I think, you know, looking at this from the modern perspective, we, well, first of all, most people know the outcome of of the case. But also, I think there's a certain sophistication and and kind of baseline understanding of how kidnappers work and that without real proof of life, meaning something that's dated and timed that shows the baby alive, like that's bad news. That's not Mm -hmm. like a play suit is not what you want to get as proof of life. So their hopes are dashed at that point. Condon was able to give a good description of Cemetery John and some sketches were made. Um, He also gave a really detailed transcript of what they discussed and what the man's accent was like. And he described his accent as being Scandinavian. Um, And if you go and look at the episode notes or check out our Instagram, you can see the sketch that resulted from Dr. Condon's description. But it really wasn't enough to go on and and actually find someone. So then a couple of weeks later, on May 12th of that same year, 1932, the badly decomposed remains of little Charlie were found in the woods near the family home. And it just happened completely by accident. It was someone who was in the area for a delivery and came upon the body. It was later determined, really tragically, I think, that 
he had died of blunt force trauma to the head, and it happened on the night of the abduction. So all of this time, all of this hope that the family had had and all the work that they had invested, and the baby had been dead the entire time. Again, I think looking at this from a modern lens, that isn't necessarily surprising to anyone who has ever followed any kidnapping cases. And in the documentary that I watched, it featured John Douglas, who is really thought of as the father of of criminal profiling. And the character in Mindhunter is based on him, and he's written a ton of books. And I mean, I am kind of a fangirl, personally. <laughs> he is talking about it, and, and the way he described it is, like, a kidnapped baby is nothing but liability, there's the logistics of how to care for them. They're loud. They're noticeable. Like, you know, there's no upside in hanging on to a baby. So after the body was found, you know, tremendous efforts were made to bring the perpetrators to justice, to figure out who they were and to punish them. Again, you know, if you if you look at it through a modern lens, you might even feel like an unfair or undue amount of attention compared to what an unknown child would have received in similar circumstance. You know, it was it was just tremendous because of the fame of the family, the wealth of the family, and the fact that Charles Lindbergh himself was viewed in a very particular way as a hero, as a symbol of America, uh, you know, and all of these different things came into play so that so much energy and attention was going to finding out who had done this. But in large part because of the mishandling of the scene, the case went cold. And the FBI and the New Jersey State Police continued to put a lot of resources into it and followed up literally thousands and thousands of leads. And this is before computers and databases, but they just, they had nothing. So one smart thing that they had done when they were managing the case is when they pulled the, um, the ransom together... They didn't mark the bills, but they did note the serial numbers of all the bills. And they also decided to throw in there with the cash some gold certificates. And they did this because they knew that gold certificates were on the cusp of being recalled by the government. And so they wouldn't be legal tender anymore after a certain amount of time. And what that meant from the FBI perspective was when people used them, they would be given additional scrutiny. So even mm-hmm. if someone didn't know about the Lindbergh case and didn't know that those had been included in the ransom, although they did prepare a big information packet that they sent around to lots of businesses in the whole like New York, New Jersey area. But even if somebody didn't have that knowledge they would be paying special attention to them because they were being discontinued and they may actually note down information about the user of the certificate. So in the end, the break that they finally got came about because of that very thing. In, let's see, 1935, I think it was? No, 1934 in September. So two and a half years after the murder, a German immigrant named Richard Hauptmann, who was working incidentally as a carpenter at the time, was arrested after using ransom bills and gold certificates for paying for gas at a filling station. So again, that foresight was very crucial because the the gas station attendant initially didn't suspect him of having anything to do with the Lindbergh case, but wrote down his license plate number because he used a gold certificate and he wasn't sure if 
the gold certificate would go through and be paid. And if it wasn't, he wanted his license plate number so he could track him down and get paid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in some ways, it's kind of like the Son of Sam thing, where this very, like, small, almost bureaucratic little detail in the investigation helped crack it. So they brought him in, and then they did a search of his house. And when they did a search of his house, they found in his home about $14,000 of the ransom money. So from that moment on, that was pretty much it. The police felt that they had their man. They did an investigation, and you know, going back to the ladder, they searched the home and they knew from their, their examination of the evidence that the ladder was made of a certain kind of pine. I think it was like Eastern pine or something. And then as they're searching, um, Hauptmann's home, they notice in the attic that the floorboards in the attic are made of the same kind of Eastern pine. Again, I, I think that's what it is, but I'm not sure, but it was made of the same kind of wood. So they dug a little deeper, and then they noticed that one of the floorboards in the attic of of his home was missing. And so they get the ladder, and they dissemble the ladder, and they have the ladder broken into sections, and they find that one of the one of the pieces of the ladder exactly correlates to the piece that is missing in the attic. The grains mm-hmm. of the wood line up, the nail holes line up exactly with the missing plank. And I guess it also had very distinctive nail holes because it used an an older style square nail, which was not in current use. So at that point, they just felt that they had a slam dunk. The wrinkle in all of this is that Hauptmann vehemently denied being involved. He had a story. He said that the money belonged to a friend of his who had gone back to Germany and left the money there, and then he died in Germany a couple months later, and so he kept the money because it was owed to him through another deal that they had done. So he was basically like, the money is not mine. He couldn't explain the board or why a board from his home was used in the ladder, but he just denied any involvement at all. Um, But the following year, he was tried, and he was convicted and sentenced to death, and he was, in fact, executed in April of 1936. So case closed. I mean, here's one where we have almost kind of a happy ending as opposed to some of the other ones we've done where it's still unsolved or, you know, justice wasn't served. But when we step away from it a little, there are still a lot of things that don't quite add up. And Mm -hmm. actually, for a time, Dr. Condon was a suspect. And honestly, part of me wants to dig even deeper into this and be like, hell yeah, like what the fuck was up with him, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, how did he know that there was going to be a need for this emissary? And, yeah, just very suspicious. But on the other hand, they cleared him. And, again, I don't think that the police and the FBI were so incompetent. I think that's kind of like my modern way of looking back, that anything that happened more than 20 years ago was you know, by definition, incompetent, which is not true, obviously. (laughs) Um, But so he was considered. There was also a woman named Violet Sharp who worked for Ann Lindbergh's mother, and she came under suspicion. And they questioned her, and they questioned her again, or they were about to come back and question her, and she committed suicide um, right before they arrived. And so that seemed to be 
even more damning and maybe she was involved. But they re-examined her alibi for that night and they cleared her. She was not involved. But I think those two things bring up the question of, you know, was it a conspiracy? She could mm-hmm. have been involved without actually being there. And why why would she kill herself just, you know, if she had no involvement? And so in this documentary, John Douglas, his kind of hypothesis is that there was some inside involvement, whether intentional or unintentional. Because the family typically went to this home for the weekends and then went back to this other home during the week. And this week in particular, they didn't. They had decided at the last minute to stay on at the country home because Charlie had a cold and they didn't want to, they didn't want him to travel. And so m- your average kidnapper for profit would not have any way of knowing that they were going to be there that night. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one thing that leads to, to the inside knowledge. The other thing is the family had a dog and the dog was known to really bark and be aggressive to strangers. And the dog did not bark that night at all. So another theory, if, you know, people have cleared Condon, they've cleared Violet Sharp. But another theory is that Lindbergh himself was actually involved. And I dug into this quite a bit because, Mm -hmm. you know, Andrew, I love a good conspiracy theory. (laughs) And as it turns out, as much as at the time he was America's hero, Charles Lindbergh was a piece of shit, really. So when when you actually read about the man, he was a Nazi sympathizer Vocally so until after Pearl Harbor. That's when I think he realized he needed to shut up with that shit. Mm -hmm. But he was anti-Semitic and was a Nazi sympathizer. And he spoke publicly about um, staying out of the war. And he was really into eugenics, which, if listeners don't know, is basically like human breeding that you can bring about like the uber human by mm-hmm. selective breeding, and it's closely related to, you know, Aryan white power kinds of thinking. So I've heard other things say that he was just also a really terrible husband and father. But again, going back to this idea that Charlie might have been, might have had some physical deformities or some um, congenital defects. There is, and has been a, a book written about this theory that he Lindbergh sacrificed him for eugenic studies or that he was embarrassed and wanted to have him smuggled out of the house to put him in an institution because he reflected poorly on, on his lineage. And, you know, so lots of things around that. And there are a few theories that have been pretty fleshed out. And again, books written on it by Mm -hmm. respected professionals, you know, professors at Rutgers and others. So not crackpot theories, but some real like research and, evidence presented for that theory. And one other little detail that kind of supports that is that the night of the kidnapping, Lindbergh was supposed to be at a speaking engagement in New York City. And Mm -hmm. without telling anyone, he skipped it and went home. And that was very unlike him. He was committed to his speaking engagements and very dutiful by all accounts in his professional life. And he just skipped and went straight home. So some people see that as evidence to support the fact that he wanted to be there to manage the situation so that the kidnappers could have access. 
So again, I love a good conspiracy theory, and I especially love it when a complete, like, abomination of a person is guilty of a crime because it kind of supports my Mm -hmm. worldview. But having said that, I found a detail that would seem to go against the theory that Lindbergh was involved, and that is that the ladder... So the ladder was a three-piece extension ladder, and we have pictures of it on on the website and on Instagram. But it was constructed to all work together to extend to a pretty high height, right? And so what they found when they found the, the ladder was that one piece of it had broken. And so they theorized that on the way down, the ladder broke and they dropped the baby, and that's how the baby died. But what the interesting tidbit that I found was that only two pieces of the three-piece ladder had been used to reach the second-story window. So my question is, if Lindbergh had been involved, he would have told them exactly how high how high the second-story window was, you would think, right? To, like, mm-hmm. if he was orchestrating all of this, and he was known to be a very, like, efficient and organized and well-planned kind of person, that he would have told them the second-story window is... You know, not exactly 21, 21 feet and two inches, but it's about 20 feet or it's about 25 feet. And so you would think then that the kidnappers would have brought a ladder that went exactly to that height. As you're kidnapping a toddler, I don't think you would want to be carrying around an extra ladder, essentially, if you didn't need it. But they came with three pieces and they only used two. So a little, I don't know, something there that seems to point away from Lindbergh. Unless um, they didn't use the ladder at all. And it was that. a prop piece and they just were given the baby or the baby was killed or however. Like the ladder could be, you know, to prove that someone stole him through the window when really the ladder was just what what it was, like a proof of action as opposed to necessarily the ladder was used to steal the baby out of the window. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. And Again, because the scene was really pretty much decimated, even now with better forensic understanding, they can't recreate exactly what happened. And it's not known exactly how the baby was taken or even when. You know, the window of time is between 8 o'clock when the nanny put him down and 10 o'clock when the nanny next went to check on him and noticed he wasn't there. So it's not even, we're not even able to pinpoint the exact time that he was taken and definitely not the means. Mm-hmm. So again, going back to this documentary that I watched and I highly recommend it, um, it's called Who Killed Lindbergh's Baby? And it was produced by uh, Nova for PBS. It's not very long. It's not even an hour, but it goes into a lot of detail. And again, it's John Douglas, this like rock star FBI profiler, kind of talking through, asking questions and exploring some different theories. And his theory is that it was a conspiracy that um, Hauptmann, the man who was executed for the crime, wouldn't have done something like this on its own. It, it happened in when, you know, it's still winter in March in New Jersey, in the mm-hmm. East, Northeast that he wouldn't have done something like this on his own. It was just too much to manage a baby, a ladder, a, you know. And so he did have a partner. That's what he speculates, at least one, maybe more. And that the inside information did come from Violet Sharp. 
although it may not have been intentional. You know, she could have just been gabbing and only realized after the crime what she had done or what she had said or how she had been used as a pawn. And she felt guilt and then killed herself. But, you know, John Douglas's take on it is, you know, it was the work of people in the criminal underworld at the time, kidnapping children of wealthy people was not that uncommon. And part of the result of this was, again, that the FBI created what was known as Lindbergh Law, and it made it a federal crime to kidnap and transport a child across state lines and made the punishment much, much more severe for this crime. And so after that, the incidence of that type of crime dropped dramatically to the point where now it's very uncommon uh, for children to be kidnapped for ransom in the United States. Um, But at the time, it was the Great Depression. People were hard up. It was seen as kind of an easy, somewhat harmless way of getting money for your family if you could execute a ransom baby swap without violent a violent outcome. In this case... Mm -hmm. The baby was either killed immediately or died accidentally during the kidnapping process. And but yeah, so that's kind of the context of it all. You know, one thing that did always stick with me was how vehemently Hoffman proclaimed innocence right up until the time he was executed. And, you know, I think it's kind of a common thing to think, well, people who go to their their death, they kind of, they want to confess. They want to, what they have nothing to lose anymore at that point by confessing. But one point that John Douglas made in this documentary was that he had a young son and it's very common for people who have young children to try to protect the family name by denying a crime. And he Mm -hmm. said, you know, later they may be through DNA evidence proven beyond all shadow of a doubt that they were guilty, but they proclaimed their innocence to their death. So basically saying that it's not unheard of that people who are without any doubt at all guilty of a crime will go to their death proclaiming innocence. That That yeah. is a thing. Yeah. Man, I can't wait to tell you about the culture side, but I wanted to say like mentally, at least just to me, maybe to you too, like the parallels to Jean Benet so interesting which is what makes me more interested in Lindbergh being involved yeah taking control of the crime scene like that yeah. I mean just so many similarities like a fake ransom perpetuating a ransom pretending that someone is alive when they're already dead yeah there were so many pieces to it that don't add up like it's a perfect for a conspiracy I mean even if it was the guy they thought it was working alone. Like it's still perfect for a conspiracy because the coincidences, the weirdnesses, the people involved. I mean, I would absolutely subscribe to, and it it could absolutely be that man was involved in the conspiracy too. But yeah, Jean Monnet just kept coming up over and over in my mind of like, yeah, this doesn't add up actually. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, I'm not convinced that Lindbergh wasn't involved in some way. I mean, he had multiple motives. And, you know, again, after his lifetime, it, it came out. I mean, it was his his Nazi sympathies were known at the time. Um, and they were just viewed at that time as not that bad. Like, that wasn't seen as that big of a character defect, if it was seen as a character defect at all. And 
for many, it wasn't. But, you know, when I read about the eugenics, like that's, that's a different thing. And then one detail and a pretty big detail that I forgot is after his lifetime, seven children, seven illegitimate children surfaced in Germany who he fathered with two sisters and a third woman. Um, He was in his 50s and 60s when this happened. And I couldn't find a specific source, but it was basically described as something that he did as an act, not of... I mean, obviously they were extra extramarital dalliances, but not in the traditional sense of these romances, but that they were intentional acts by him to impregnate German women who at the time in Germany after the war, it was seen as there were a, there was a dearth of breeding stock of men because of the men who were killed in the war. And so to like repopulate the Aryan Ugh. supply of children, there were men who went to Germany and intentionally impregnated women just for, like, not as romantic affairs, but just to, like, repopulate Germany with white people. So. Wow. When you find that out, like, you know, as I was hearing the thing about, like, you know, he did it to beca- to run, like, eugenics experiments on his son or to give his his son to this um, scientist who, and they did collaborate and he was involved in some scientific experiments and discoveries. So there's that. And I mean, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, like go and the sources are on the website, but I was still kind of like, it's hard to conceive of a parent doing that. Right. But then when you find out that they like intentionally breeded and, and, and like, that is the word they breeded with people to increase the population of white, like pure race children in Germany Mm -hmm. after the Holocaust. So like with that context, then it's like, okay, this man could be capable of anything. And so that little tidbit totally changed my perspective. So I don't know what happened, but you know, clearly there are a lot of different options and you know, the one detail with Hauptmann, too, that I I said it, but I don't know if it really popped from what I said. They found $14,000 of ransom money in his house. Now, he got either 50 or 70. I don't they mm-hmm. the ransom total went back and forth. He either got 50 or 70. Now, so within a span of two and a half years, maybe he spent the other you know, 36 or 56,000. But that would be a pretty hard thing to do without attracting a shit ton of notice, mm-hmm. right? Well, especially I mean, at that he, time, that money was worth so much more. Yeah, millions. I mean, the 30s, that's like the Depression. Right. So where's that other money? Is it because he had partners? You know, so like there's a lot of unanswered questions. But at the time, it was like the country needs the case to be solved. And that's, that's kind of the impression that you get about it. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what you found on the culture side, but that was the impression I got was that here's a guy, he was clearly up to no fucking good and was up to his ass in this and the country needs resolution. And so he did it case closed, you know? Yeah. Never miss a foul detail. Follow us at Most Foul Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Well, on the culture side, um, I'm excited to tell you, Kirsten, and to tell the listeners. Like you said, the Lindberghs were famous. And this kidnapping was a media frenzy. And it inspired incredible pieces of art. I was very surprised the pathways I went in this research. So in May of 1932, just one day after the Lindbergh baby was discovered murdered, um, prolific country recording artist Bob Miller recorded two songs under the pseudonym Bob Ferguson commemorating the event. Um, One was called Charles A. Lindbergh Jr. And the other was There's a New Star Up in Heaven. Baby Lindy is up there. Mm. So... Listeners, believe me when I say that I could not find a recording of either of these songs. And I am good at Googling. (laughs) I went deep. I went into these forums. I went into like these listserv recordings of old forums. Like you have no idea the treasure hunt I went on. So if you have a recording, if you can find a recording, please send it to us because it is driving me insane (laughs) that I could not find these. (laughs) Um, But back to music. All all the way up in 2002, the Opera Theater of St. Louis premiered a new opera by Carrie John Franklin entitled Loss of Eden, and it commemorated the centennial of Lindbergh's birth, the 75th anniversary of his transatlantic crossing, and reflected on his public triumph and personal tragedy in the kidnapping and murder. In 2004... Curtis Eller's American Circus referenced the case on their track called Amelia Earhart. So this song is available to listen to. And I actually really enjoyed it. So you can check it out on our Spotify playlist. But there were a couple lyrics that stood out to me that I wanted to read. Uh, So it goes, I wish I was Amelia Earhart, like a tombstone worn smooth by the years. And I wish that I was Amelia Earhart because Charles Lindbergh lived his life in fears. Well, the ones that stay too long run up on trouble, like the Lindbergh baby somewheres down the line. You know they'll burst into the house at night while everybody's sleeping and make off with that baby every time. And I wish I was Amelia Earhart. Mm. So I don't know why. Something about the songwriting, something about the lyrics, I was like, oh, that's intense about dying young versus living long to have the tragedies. I mean, a common theme and all sorts of songs, but yeah, it's given me the chills. I've got got scalp chills. Um, so then, where things really pop off in the culture is over to the literary side. So, one of the most famous mystery novels in the world, and our very own Kirsten's inciting incident, uh, was inspired by this case: Agatha Christie's 1934 Murder on the Orient Express. So she describes the kidnapping of baby girl Daisy Armstrong. And the novel has many elements from the real life case. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure Kirsten could speak to this too. Um, But a young child, firstborn of the family, kidnapped for ransom directly from the crib, famous parents, father was a well-known pilot, the mother was pregnant, and the ransom was paid, but the child was found dead soon after. So very tight similarities to the real case. And so then you've got to like think the butterfly effect. So this novel based on the crime or inspired heavily by the crime, Mm -hmm. it continues to massively influence pop culture, just this novel. So 
In radio, there was a five-part BBC adaptation that originally broadcast at the end of 92 and beginning of 93. There was a Soviet radio play in the 60s. Um, in 2017, Audible released another uh, radio-esque adaptation. I don't know exactly how uh, Audible fits in, but very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, in film, the book was made into the 1974 movie, and actually in which Ingrid Bergman won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for her role. Um, and this movie was a critical commercial success at the time. I mean, it made $35 million. The budget was only $1.4. And then in 2017, the remake came along, starring Kenneth Branagh's Perot. Also, Johnny Depp, Michelle Pfeiffer, Penelope Cruz, Judy Dench, Derek Jacoby, Leslie Odom Jr., Daisy Whit- Ridley, Willem Dafoe, Olivia Coleman, and more. So, like, all-star, all-star cast. Mm-hmm. So this movie, again, huge success. $353 million off of a $55 million budget. TV, all over TV as well. It was adapted in Germany in 1955, the U.S. in 2001, the U.K. in 2015, and Japan in 2016. Um, it's been adapted into a play, which actually premiered in New Jersey, very close to the crime itself, in 2017. And then... The novel was also adapted into a board game in 1985 and a computer game in 2006. I didn't know that. Yeah, you get to spend an hour in this PC game trying to solve the case. Wild. So all of that from a singular novel inspired by this crime. So jumping back to the crime itself and other inspirations... Um, in 1972, Tom Tieran's novel and film, The Other, mentions the Lindbergh kidnapping several times. The kidnapping and its aftermath served as the inspiration for Marie Sendak's book, Outside Over There, which is part of a type of trilogy based on psychological development. So it starts with uh, In the Night Kitchen for Toddlers, Where the Wild Things Are for Preschool, and outside over there for pre-adolescence. Wild. So in the documentary, tell them anything you want, a portrait of Maurice Sendak. Uh, Sendak describes his awareness in 1932 when he was around the age of four. So he talks about the sensational Lindbergh baby kidnapping cases and even talks about seeing a newspaper photograph of the child's remains Mm. as a child himself. So that experience showed him the mortality and the peril that children face, which the adults in deck express, expressed throughout all of his books. Um, and then outside over there draws more specifically from the Lindbergh case. So a child is stolen from its crib through a window, accessed by a ladder. And one of the illustrations of the lost baby is a deliberate portrait of Charles Lindbergh Jr. Uh. So the theme of a protective sister is drawn from his own childhood in which his sister was his primary caregiver and friend. So aside from winning a National Book Award for children's books, School Library Journal Best Book, Caledot Honor Book, Horn Book Fanfare, and being added to the Library of Congress, this book inspired Jim Henson's 1986 film Labyrinth. Mm. In so much which Labyrinth creeped me out as a child, but that's a different story. (laughs) 
but in so much in the closing credits of Labyrinth that says, and I quote, Jim Henson acknowledges his debt to the works of Maurice Sendak. Mm. Wow. So the book was also featured in the 2003 Japanese film Café Lumiere, a song from English singer-songwriter Will Varley, and Victor Laval's 2017 novel The Changeling, which itself is being adapted into a TV show for FX right now. (laughs) So again, all of that from one singular children's book that was inspired by this crime. It's incredible. It is Um, incredible. Yeah, as I started the research, it was like, these uh, the butterfly effects ripples the whatever uh, like expression like who would have ever known all of these pieces can be tied back to the Lindbergh kidnapping and murder accidental death however you want to frame it so again back to the crime itself Um, it's the focus of Max Allen Collins 1991 novel Stolen Away Philip Roth's 2004 novel The Plot Against America uh, Mark Dionis, 2012, The Last Newspaper Man, James Patterson's 1993 novel and subsequent film, Along Came of a Spider, takes inspiration from the crime, um, as well as Melanie Benjamin's 2013 novel, The Aviator's Wife. So, I mean, huge. Yeah. Uh, I know I'm going quickly, but it, it was like a, an infinite supply of things. So over in television, there was a 76 TV movie, The Lindbergh Kidnapping Case, which starred Anthony Hopkins. In 1995, there was an episode of The Simpsons called Mother Simpson, where Grandpa Simpson claims that he is the Lindbergh baby. (laughs) Uh, In 96, The Lindbergh Kidnapping was the subject of Golden Globe and Emmy-nominated HBO TV movie Crime of the Century. Um, An episode of Family Guy from 2000 has a skit about the case uh, in which the parents are arguing and the baby flushes itself down the toilet. (laughs) You know, as Family Guy is wont to do. The 2011 Clint Eastwood-directed film J. Edgar includes references to the kidnapping. The PBS Nova who killed Lindbergh's baby, which Kirsten recommended. I haven't watched, but I will now. Um, focused on the investigation again with John Douglas. And then lastly, at least according to two random websites I found, the kidnapping has even become a Spanish expression, which I saw referenced specifically in Venezuela, <laughs> which is uh, estar más perdido que el hijo de Lindbergh, which translates to to be more lost than Lindbergh's child and like basically means, Oh, you're clueless. Yeah. Which is now like a turn of phrase uh, that's come from the case. And so that is the vast and unpredictable pop culture legacy of the crime of the century. That's amazing. I mean, you know, it's, it's like that perfect intersection between something horrific that like tickles that primordial part of your brain, you know, and fame and Mm -hmm. the natural kind of curiosity that people already have about people who are famous and just takes those two and like smashes them into this giant ball of, yeah. It's wild. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's also, 
and it seems at times like it gets a bit lost in it all. It's also just really sad. This innocent baby who, you know, in spite of all of the trappings of of wealth and the fame of his parents was, you know, just an innocent little kid, like, trying to live his best life in his crib and, you know, it was a cute little thing. Yeah, just really sad. I had a question and I didn't want to ask you and interrupt because there's a good chance you do not have the answer. Okay. So baby dies. Baby's in the woods close to the house. Did the ransomer strip the baby and keep its clothes? Did the ransomer go back to the dead baby and take the clothes? Were they not even the baby's clothes? And Lindbergh took that as proof of life because he already knew that the baby was dead. What do you think about that? That popped into my mind as you were telling me. I think it's a good question. Yeah, I I don't think, I don't know that it's known. And again, I didn't do exhaustive research, so it could be out there. But it happened long enough ago that, you know, there are records that are not public or, you know, Mm -hmm. so I don't personally know, but I think it's a good question. And I wondered it myself as I was listening. I'm like, so the baby accidentally dies and they decide to strip it and leave it naked. Like, you know, there's nothing about this case that would indicate it was any kind of sexually motivated crime. Um, Mm -hmm. It seemed purely for money. So yeah, I was left wondering that same thing. And, you know, it's hard when, when I'm researching these things, I feel like at times I have to, I, I don't enjoy looking at crime scene pictures and things like that, but you know, I feel like to do it justice, I kind of need to see. And so before I was able to go and look up crime scene pictures, I watched the documentary and in the documentary, it shows crime scene pictures and footage and truthfully, and you know, this is hard to say. And I know like for a lot of people who have kids, this kind of content is like really hard to listen to. Um, so I get it. So if you want to skip this part, skip, but in looking at it, it was very easy to like distance and dissociate because it didn't even look like a baby. Like it was so decomposed that it didn't look like, you know, you couldn't even really tell. And so I couldn't tell on the baby if it was clothed, but I'm sure examiners could tell, you know, so I don't know. I, I assume that it must've been the authentic item for them to take it as proof because I assume that, from the sounds of it, the nurse or the nanny was very involved and confirmed certain details. So I assume it would have been the nanny who would have had to have confirmed that that was the play suit, not the dad. Like, again, these are olden times, if we want to call mm-hmm. it that, like a very wealthy, we don't have aristocratic families in this country, but a very wealthy family that operates in many ways like you know, an aristocratic family in the sense that parents were raised by nannies. I mean, kids were raised by nannies, not by their parents necessarily. And so um, I think Roz was her name, that nanny, that nurse probably would have been the one to verify those things. But yeah, those are details. I just, I don't know. And I don't know if they're available, but I think they're good questions. And yeah, there's a part of me that wants to go and like re-examine every little bit and inch and tidbit of this case to see, like, did they know what they were doing? Did they do a good job? But 
again, because I'm a fangirl and because I think his record speaks for itself, the fact that John Douglas did review the case and and didn't, you know, mention big holes in this or that makes me assume that, like, the standard party line on certain things is true and he did look at it and, you know. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, that was one of my questions. And then uh, the latter, for sure, where it's like, okay, well, we know that the baby died and you weren't carrying a baby. So why leave the ladder if the ladder wasn't meant to be found? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. And without seeing a map of it, what it sounds like to me is that the ladder was left at the edge of the property. So not right by the window, but it, they carried it again, which points to more than one person because you, you have a dead baby or a, li- a live baby. Either way, like it's going to be something to manage. And and we say baby, but it was 20 months old and a 20 month old can oh, weigh yeah. a significant amount. You know, I mean, my kids were that age. They were already like in the 30, 30 pound range. So not an insignificant amount of weight. And then you've got this ladder, it's solid wood. So we're not talking about an aluminum ladder that, you know, you can carry a three tier ladder in one hand. Like it's a solid wood ladder. So multiple people, probably someone in control of the ladder, someone in control of the baby, but the ladder makes it to like the edge of the property. And then the baby, I read different accounts, one that was like a mile away and one that said about four miles. But so the baby was some additional distance away. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my speculation is that I don't know why they took the ladder away at all, other than they had some inkling that it, you know, incriminated them or could incriminate them. So they took it, but then they drop it because, you know, it's a solid wood ladder. How far are they going to take it? There, you know, if the baby had already died, they may have been bickering about what to do with the baby. Do we take, you know, so at that point, they just kind of give up and they they leave the ladder where they think it's far enough away that it won't be found for a while, at least. And then they make it that much further with the baby before they decide that the best course of action is to not take the baby. Do they? Yeah, I don't know. Do they strip the baby? Do they go back? I would guess that maybe they go back because... Mm -hmm. It's hard to imagine that in that moment they would have had the clarity of thought to be like, oh, we should take the the play suit in case we get asked for proof of life. Like, it seems like probably what happened, It you know, it was bungled. The baby died. They panicked to some degree or another, although John Douglas seems to believe that this is a kind of crime that would be carried out by someone who has some criminal experience already and... Hauptmann did have a criminal record in Germany for various things, not kidnapping, but, you know, he he was already a criminal. So in some level of panic, they decide to abandon the baby, but I can't see them thinking at that point to take the clothing. So I imagine, you know, at some point in the future, they go back and, but, you know, I, I don't know that for sure. Yeah. That's kind of how I envision it happening. I think the big question is around at the house. How did they get access? How did they know where the nursery was? You know, how did they know that the window would be unlocked? You know, it was winter, so. And if they were scoping it out to that extent to know, oh, I need a ladder about this tall. I know where the nursery is. How in the world would they have not known that the family shouldn't have been there? Right. Right. So there's a lot of basic planning things that do not add up. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so it's it's very questionable. Like I said, my overarching sentiment is that they just wanted it over and they had someone who they could, not that he wasn't guilty, but they had someone who could take the fall mm-hmm. for it. You know, take ju- they could claim that justice had been served. But it definitely doesn't feel like we have all the answers. And because of the age of the case and the fact that everyone involved is dead, I don't know that we ever will. Yeah. Wow. Well, a fascinating topic. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any like super inside information and major (laughs) theories, send us a message. Uh, We'd love to hear it. Like I said, if you can find those songs, I desperately need to hear them (laughs) to put this to rest on my own journey. Yeah. And I think, you know, it really already I'm I'm seeing so many links between the different cases that we talk about. And in between we talk about, you know, we've talked a lot about the difference between the 70s and the 80s and the childhood that we had and the childhood now. But I do think that it's plausible. Again, this is like a dissertation topic for someone who's not me. Like, can you draw a straight line from the Lindbergh baby case to the way kids are overparented now and never let out of anyone's sight. And I think there's a pretty decent circumstantial evidence that you could draw that direct line. Um, mm-hmm. That that's kind of like maybe one of the beginnings or the beginning of Stranger Danger. And how, as you said, it's it was like absorbed out into the culture almost immediately. And that started that cycle of really fearing and and feeling like anything can happen to your kids, like in this world. Yeah. And we didn't explicitly say it, but like, while it's journalism, the media frenzy itself, I mean, this was the new story of the day. Like, I mean, that affects pop culture too. It's not art. It's it's not mm-hmm. art and media like for covering, but a case like this where the media frenzy was so massive, I think it would be at least a disservice not to mention that it had a profound impact on the country, like you were saying, yeah. the world. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even in that terminology, the crime of the century, I mean, now that's a term that gets tossed around pretty freely, but at the time it really meant something. Yeah, when that person stole my identity and bought $750, I was like, this is the crime of the century. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. And with that, uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And we, as always, appreciate the hell out of you. Yes. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini-episode, visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production.